Thanks for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organizations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker, and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. Hello and welcome to this very special HR Uprising podcast. Four years ago, we we were pre-pandemic, who would have thought that so much would have happened over the last four years? And 200 episodes ago, um, we launched the HR Uprising podcast at the Festival of Work. And some of you listeners may well have been there when we were telling you all about it and encouraging you to, um, to subscribe and sign. And if you were one of those, thank you so much for staying with us. So since then, we've, as I mentioned, we've delivered 200 episodes of a range of uh, solo episodes where I've shared knowledge and research that I've looked into on various topics. And we've had some amazing, amazing guests. More than that, we've had a real growth in our listenership. So my um, the people who help us produce our podcast are reliably inform us that we're in the top 1.5% of podcasts which is pretty amazing. Who would have thought that? Um, I don't know if I'd have thought myself that we'd have managed to keep going for this long. So this is really a massive, massive thank you to all of you who have listened to the, listened to the various episodes. It's a reminder that there's so much really great content that we've got categorised. So if you want to go back and listen to things, uh, you go to hruprising.com and we've got various categories on there and you'll often find uh, something on a topic that may well be, it may not have been relevant to you then, but would be relevant to you now. So I really hope you can still get value out of the content that we've used previously. In terms of our listeners, uh, I'd like to shout out to listeners in the 155 countries worldwide. And that includes people in Venezuela and the Cook Islands. Um, All one of you. So thank you. You won listeners out there. If you are that person, please get in touch. I would totally love to hear from you. And what I thought I'd do is because this is a special episode, Um, we've got a very special guest and this is somebody who I have actually been full of awe for for some years actually and I was a bit scared to see whether or not she would come on the podcast and so I was so delighted that she decided to do so and I'll lead into that in a moment. So hopefully you'll get lots and lots out of the actual episode itself and it's a real celebration of of, uh, someone else who's very, very influential in the HR space. And um, at the end, if you listen to the end, there'll be a little outro. And for those of you who are loyal listeners and who would like a free gift, um, listen right to the end and I'll tell you how you can get a free gift in celebration of our 200th episode. So now I will hand over to our very special 200th episode guest. 
and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And this is a significant episode for us, and it required an equally significant guest. So I've been following this lady's work pretty much since I started out in consultancy, and I love the way she challenges and continues to challenge outdated HR practices and mindsets. I'm confident that you will all have heard of this special guest, and I'm hugely grateful to welcome Lucy Adams, the founder and CEO of Disruptive HR, to be our guest of honour on this 200th HR Uprising episode. Lucy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Lucinda. And, and I feel really privileged to be your 200th guest. Massive congratulations for doing so many. I know. <laughs> Prolific, it seems, doesn't it? I'm, I don't think I've yeah. ever done anything this consistently ever in my life. <laughs> I'm very delighted to have you today. Um, So I guess for for the benefit of anyone who has been hiding under an HR rock, I doubt there'll be many, but do you want to just explain a bit about your background? Because I know you've got an interesting um, corporate background and, you you know, what brought you to set up the disruptive HR business? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I describe myself as a recovering HR director, you know, because that's kind of what I am. Um, I've been in HR for most of my professional career. And the place, kind of the corporate gig that people will have heard of is probably the BBC, right? So I was at the BBC for about five years and that was my last corporate role. And it was during that time where I just became increasingly disillusioned and frustrated with HR, what I was doing. And, you know, I think we all have doubts, you know, any HR person uh, in the business will have those little doubts where you kind of that voice will say, is this really working? Is this really having an impact? Is this really kind of what our people and our organization needs? Well, that kind of little voice was shouting by the end. And I think, you know, this combination of the BBC being um, going through enormous change and not just the BBC, but like many organizations, whether it be digital or whether it be the need for increased agility and fast moving decision making, Um, the impact of people's expectations of the workplace changing, you know, all of this stuff. And I think it was a combination of the fact that there were these challenges, what I seemed to be doing, which was following kind of just accepted wisdom around this is how you do stuff. This is how you do performance management. This is how you do talent management. And the fact that people at the BBC, as you can imagine, aren't frightened of pushing back. You know, in previous organizations, people had kind of just done what I said. And then suddenly I've got a bunch of journalists in front of me and they're going, but this is rubbish, you know, and why should I do this? And this doesn't work for me. I mean, one one of them said to me, I think it was like deputy head of news said, why do you keep coming along here and depressing us? You know, it's like, well, that kind of wasn't the plan. So really as a result of my experiences there building on years of those little nagging doubts that maybe hr wasn't fit for purpose my business partner my co-founder karen moran and i decided over a very very long lunch that we should take our own frustrations we take our issues and challenges that we were having and see whether we could actually help hr people business leaders do things differently and so that's where disruptive hr comes from so we've been working God, with thousands now of HR people and business leaders um, in every continent, in every sector, simply to help them do the people stuff differently. So I can see how you got inspired to try and do things differently. Um, when you had, uh, 
would you say that you are a disruptor? Are you naturally somebody who pushes the boundaries or likes to change things or seeks out change? Or was it just that you, the reality came to you while you were there that things had to be different? I mean, I think the fact that I didn't have a traditional HR background in that I didn't come up through the kind of classic CIPD, um, start off doing kind of more junior transactional work, move up the processes into a strategic role. I came at it through a more commercial route, through a bit like you on the OD side of things, change management, and then I kind of inherited HR. And I think that helped in that I was never frightened to say why and do we have to and what's the purpose of this? So I think um, that kind of sometimes if we're schooled in something from a very, very young age, we stop questioning it. So I think the fact that I hadn't had that traditional HR background, I think helped. I think I am naturally rebellious in that if people will tell me I have to do something, my it's almost like kind of mental Tourette's. It's that kind of, you know, well, I immediately want to not do it like that. Um, so I think that instinctively um, I am probably a, a little bit more rebellious, a little bit, you know, like to think a bit more punk rock. Um, not anymore, but in the older <laughs> days. But um, but yeah, so I think kind of pushing, pushing a bit, challenging a bit, but also the fact that I'd worked more closely with commercial business leaders than I had with HR. And so that kind of sense of how does it benefit the business? Is it the right thing to do? Does it make sense? You know, that kind of basic common sense. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that similar background. I said I came from OD. I also started in sales. And, and that kind of commercial route is quite important to win people over because quite a lot of when you are doing things differently or trying to embed traditional things that people don't realize is a sales job, isn't it? You've got to, uh, I mean, in your book, you talk about, in terms of change, about sort of branding and marketing and personas. So it's really having that commercial approach can be quite key to making a difference in organizations. If completely, you completely. I mean, I think a lot of the inspiration for how we could do differently, uh, do HR differently, didn't come from HR. It actually came from disciplines like marketing and sales and advertising. I mean, when I, um, as well as agile product design, neuroscience, behavioral economics, and so on. But when I left the BBC and I spent about a year really kind of going out and looking for how HR could be done differently. And of course, I started with HR. And at that stage, not so now, things are very different eight years on. But at that stage, it was a bit disappointing. It was a bit feeble. But then I kind of started talking to marketeers. Because if you think about it, we're trying to change people in HR. We're trying to change people's perceptions, change their behaviors. And that's what marketing, advertising and sales are trying to do. So we can learn and borrow so much from them. So that I found very exciting is how can we take what works in other disciplines that they're trying to do with their customers um, and apply it to HR? And it, and it is almost some, this whole rebranding. So there are examples where just thinking about a different way of positioning something more traditional that people hate, let's say performance management and making it about career or whatever it is that you can make something feel more exciting or more relevant to the individual. Is that- Yeah, and I think it's a balance, Lucinda. I think on the one hand, we need to be very careful in HR that we don't just change the wrapper um, and not the contents because we've been guilty of doing that. You know, you think when we went from personnel to strategic business partners and we've done it time and time again, kind of just, 
put a different wrapper around uh, the old content. So I think we need to be careful of that. Um, however, I think you're absolutely right. We can frame things differently, both to help make it seem more appealing, but also to help people think differently about it. So if we take the kind of performance management, you know, I think it was Hearst Publishing who said, we're not going to call it that, we're going to call it career conversations. And immediately you think, well, actually, that sounds like something I might want. I don't want a performance review. That sounds like you're going to judge and assess me. But a career conversation, yeah, I'd quite like that. And also in terms of framing the conversation, it becomes less about did you meet your objectives and more about the future. And of course, you're going to talk about performance in terms of future careers, but it becomes a very different conversation just by the reframing. And it, that's, it links into, um, I said, it's rather than something that's done to you, it's something that you can take control of, isn't it? So it links with your, uh, do you want to explain your each model for those people who haven't maybe heard about it? Because that's kind of referring to that, I suppose, in some ways. Within yeah, the definitely. So the each framework model, whatever you want to call it, I should say that, you know, I'm not a I'm not an academic. I'm not a theoretician. I'm not great at coming up with models and frameworks. And, and there's plenty of those in HR, isn't there? But but this was a way of how can we how can we sum up what are very, in some cases, quite complex, some um, quite stimulating and, in, and challenging ideas and these key trends in HR, but in a way that people can remember. And so the EACH framework has been really useful for that. And it stands for employees as adults, consumers and human beings. And when we looked at HR and kind of what needed to change to make it more relevant, impactful for a disrupted world, and what were the key trends that we were emerging, we saw it was this kind of moving away from HR being the compliance officer, the nursemaid, and instead creating an environment where people were trusted to use their judgment, encouraged to use their judgment, speak up, take a risk, um, embrace new ways of doing things. And if you're going to create that, then you need to move away from compliance and nursemaiding to one where people feel like they're more in control, that they are making their own choices, that they are able to use their judgment, that they are trusted. So that's the adult piece. We see organisations moving away from detailed policies where we try and protect ourselves from the lowest common denominator. And instead, we have um, people, yeah, individuals being dealt with if they don't behave well, but ultimately starting from a position of trust and empowering. And then the consumer piece, employees as consumers, that's all about this idea that we've just got to get rid of this one size fits all. You know, I don't know why I thought as an HR director that this was a good thing to have one size fits all processes when we're catering for individual human beings who are also different to one another, different fears, motivations, preferences, likes, and so on. So the consumerization of uh, the workplace where we've got choices, where we've got options. Um, and then the final one, human. And obviously we've been talking about human HR for forever, but I think we're finally getting it that we can't keep putting together processes because we don't trust managers to manage. So let's prop them up. Um, and these processes don't actually go with the grain of human behavior. They don't reflect how human beings think, feel, behave, can be intrinsically motivated, feel rewarded, how they learn, how they can change their habits. And I think it's quite a sad thing for HR is that somewhere along the way, we stopped being the human experts and became the kind of people process experts. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I think that's being reversed now. So we're seeing real changes in the way that um, HR is being done, not these 1980s processes, but instead real agile, 
interesting, creative ways from things like instead of putting people on training programs where they'll forget 80% of what they've learned in a month, not because they're stupid, but because they're human. And that's what the human brain does to instead these ideas like they do at Telefonica, where they have a learning shot, like a shot of tequila, which is a three minute video, because that's what we've got time for. We might remember that. We will probably give that a go. That's human centered design. Um, so I, yeah, that really excites me, that whole kind of move away from some of these processes that have been around forever to just new and fresh different ways of doing it and re HR really regaining its role as the people expert, the human expert. And I bet the benefit of tech, I guess, as well with those shots and things like that makes it so much more accessible. I mean, one of the Completely. things you and I were talking about just before we came on was that, you know, about you know working remotely and, and the pros and cons of that. Of course, your each model was way before COVID, but I was thinking how that was kind of accelerated it in many ways, because those companies that were really resisting treating people as adults and wanting to sort of capture everything, they struggled the most with it. Whereas if you really just think, actually, let's, let's, let's treat people as grown ups, we can't, we cannot physically watch over them um, and then see what they're capable of. And many businesses found that, you know, they performed the same, if not better in, in those sort of ways. I mean, would you have seen anything else as a result of COVID um, that links to, do you think it's been an accelerator for HR practices to change? I think it was an amazing accelerator. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we're seeing some reversal of some of the progress that we made. Uh, some of those old beliefs are creeping back in, but you're absolutely right. What we saw was that people can be trusted, that actually um, culture is not created by an office, Culture is created by communication, interpersonal relationships, the way we make decisions, the things we do, not the building that we're in. Um, we saw this immense kind of release of innovation and creativity, stuff that we've been trying to achieve for decades. We achieved overnight. The pace of change, unbelievable. And how adaptable people are when they're when their backs are against the wall or where actually they're given the tools to try and achieve it and find a way. So I think it was, um, was a desperately sad and traumatic and challenging period for many, for others, it was actually quite a period of real positivity and different things being done and innovation. And, um, and I think, you know, the kind of classic hybrid working piece where we've been trying in HR to get, leaders to accept that people aren't going to be untrustworthy just because they're working from home that actually they can be productive and it will be hugely beneficial to them their health their well-being they've got old style beliefs coming back in post-covid where they're sort of saying well we want you back in two days a week or three days a week it's like why you yeah know, bring people back in if there's purpose and value but don't do it on the old fashioned, old school way of, you know, three days a week, one size fits all. Do it in a way that's right for that individual and your team and your customers through conversation. And, and so we're seeing this real mix of, you know, old school thinking being applied to hybrid working, the three day a week piece. And we're also seeing really innovative approaches like, you know, Swiss Re, own the way you work. Um, work where and when you're most productive, O2, um, loads of other examples of, of really that positive, we trust you to know what you've got to achieve, we trust you to behave decently, we trust you to be productive and choose the place where you get the work done. And we'll measure you by the outcomes, the outputs, 
not how many hours we see you. And I mean, that's one of the hard things, isn't it? Because quite often managers don't understand how to do that. I suppose there's something there and perhaps we'll come on to the skills of managers later. Perhaps before we go there, I was interested in, I was looking at some of the things you've written about recently and you talked about fairness and consistency or mm. other not. And I think that's one of the things that we perhaps struggle with in HR, feeling that we've got to be fair and consistent. Uh, I don't know if you'd like to talk to that point a little bit because I was interested in what you wrote about it. Yeah, and in fact, the blog that you mentioned has got a lot of traction on LinkedIn because I think it does challenge one of our fundamental beliefs in HR. When we set out, we're told we've got to be consistent to ensure fairness. Treat everyone the same, and then there'll be no accusations of discriminatory behaviour. Everybody will be treated fairly. But I think when we think about our human lives, where we are really capable of treating people fairly or our kids fairly, but treating them differently because we use our judgment. You know, we wouldn't apply the same rules to our 16 year old son that we would to our two year old daughter or vice versa. You know, it's we're really capable of doing that. We're really capable of being discerning and using our judgment about the context and what this individual needs and wants and what's appropriate to ensure a level of fairness without having to treat everybody the same. And in fact, in some cases, treating everybody the same means that we're less fair. So, you know, let's take a a kind of slightly less inflammatory example, but an example might be um, how we communicate with people, how we reward people. You know, I mean, look at myself and my business partner. So, you know, I'm more of an extrovert, perhaps like the big shout out, a bit more of an ego. So for me, getting a shout out in a team meeting, fantastic. For her, it's her worst nightmare. She doesn't like to be the center of attention. So actually, what we need to see is managers using that judgment and saying what Lucy needs and what Karen needs is something different from me. I'm not going to treat them exactly the same. I want them both to feel the same. I I want them both to feel valued and appreciated. How I get there is going to be different. And that's okay. Um, In another example might be um, a bereavement policy. All right. Now we have these awful bereavement policies that are still out there where they're saying things like, you can have three days off if your deceased is a you know an immediate relative, but only one day for an auntie or a... who's to say what relationship that individual has with the deceased? How who's to say what they are feeling and what they need? And I think I might have been in in that uh, example uh, the blog that I mentioned. I gave the example of the company Priskat, which is a Swedish company where they just say, take the time you need. Now, if you've got someone abusing that, then you've got bigger problems with them than just this one issue. So deal with them on an individual basis, deal with them quick, deal with them hard in some ways, but don't apply that lowest common denominator approach to everybody because you're worried about the one or two rogues. We can be inconsistent and still achieve a level of fairness. And I think for some people in HR, that's really hard for us to get our heads around because we have been told we have to be consistent to be fair. But actually, I think in some cases, the, the, the what's the word I'm looking at? Converse, adverse, yeah. I don't know what the converse. word is, converse is true. Yeah. 
<laughs> the opposite is true. That's, that's easier. Yeah, that, I mean, actually, again, that resonated with what happened in COVID, uh, um, as in, where people were fearful about treating people differently um, because it's not the same. You're not treating them the same, but actually that isn't necessarily fair. And, uh, you know, if you've got young kids at home, you know, or whatever it was in those circumstances, you you have to treat Absolutely. people. Um, Absolutely. And- I mean, I've heard of companies where they have people who cannot work from home because they're frontline or, um, you know, directly interacting with customers and so on. And so they say, well, we can't do it home working for them, so we won't do it for anybody because it's not fair. Actually, I think that's crazy um, because it's, again, it's applying that kind of lowest common denominator. What you can do is do what Arkiva did, which is, you know, where they said, we know that for frontline workers, in their case, engineers, that home working is probably not feasible. However, we're going to give you some guidance managers to have a conversation with your team to work out where could you be flexible. It might be more around starting times. It might be more about holidays. How could you be more more flexible? And so it was for each team to arrive at that. What is fair and reasonable for them? And again, you're listening to them. So it does mean you need to engage with people and treat them like adults and work together as to what the solution right solutions might be. and it also means that and and this is where i know i can see why we get to the place that we've got to which is let's provide you know really clear rules for managers because we don't trust them to use their judgment and we don't, don't trust them to have those difficult conversations but i think that keeps us in this kind of codependent cycle doesn't it of we don't trust them so let's make sure they do this stuff and they'll probably do it badly, but at least we kind of know they're doing it once or twice a year, or at least we know that they're following these rules. But we're not we're not ultimately coaching them to be better. We're just staying in that, yeah, that codependent cycle. Yeah. All right. So if if some of our listeners, there's people in, in larger organizations, and there's lots of people who are sort of HR departments of one, um, trying to do everything um out there or independence. Um and it's interesting that point you're making there about you said they're asked to do something which is very, uh, but you know, being fair by which is but by actually using your your discretion, you have to be quite brave. And often people are quite fearful that they might have a, a lawsuit or something taken up against them. And and also you said um, then you said you need to deal with it. And now when I think about the webinars and things and podcasts that I've done with which talk about underperformance or dealing with underperformance, it's obviously a hot topic that people feel uncomfortable with. Not surprising, people don't like conflict. I mean, no. have you got any tips as to how people could, you know, is it just about being brave or any any examples that you've got where people can be discerning in this area and and actually pick it up and just nip things in the bud and deal with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think your point about, of course, we don't like having those difficult conversations because it's it's about conflict. And and I and I totally get it. I mean, I think as an HR person, we'll go steaming in and say, you've got to have this conversation and why haven't you dealt with it? You know, unless we've had those conversations ourselves, it, it makes you feel sick when you know that day you've got to go in and you've got to sit down with somebody and you're going to give them some information that they're not going to like, that they'll feel huge rejection or it will damage their self-esteem or they'll get angry because they'll be fearful. Of course, we don't like it. So I think that, um, you know, we should above all feel compassion and empathy for for leaders. Um, The HR people that I see doing this really well is, first of all, they are hugely supportive of the manager. So it's like, right, what's the outcome that we want? 
and getting them to be realistic. Do they ultimately want them gone or do they want them to stay? If they want them to stay, then great. You're kind of working with them and coaching and mediating. If you actually need them to go because they are have proved themselves to be untrustworthy, that they are um, that they're damaging the business. You've most meet leaders have given people loads of chances because they don't want to have the conversation. So I've never met a leader yet who said, oh, "I wish I'd taken a bit longer." They always go, "Why didn't I do this sooner?" So I think we can help them get to a conclusion more quickly and not put all of these kind of steps in their ways with performance improvement plans. I think in the end, the words, this is my judgment, this is my opinion for a leader to use. Sometimes we, we're desperate for, for the individual to be convinced that they aren't performing. I, I have rarely got to a place where the individual's gone, you know what, you're right. I am a poor performer. They don't because they get defensive, they get angry. And so I think we have to get to a place with the manager where they're comfortable saying, in my view, this is not working out, in my judgment, in my opinion, because they can't argue with that. That's their opinion and they're entitled to it. So I think just getting managers confident with that, you know, there are loads of techniques about it, like, you know, kind of practicing it out loud, saying it out loud, role playing it, um, providing them with sort of scripts and pointers. But I think in the end, it's just they have to go in there and do it. You know, I think it's just practice. And I guess they've got to be, you can't just do it out of the blue. They've got to be honest. And, you know, they've got to be honest. That it shouldn't be the first time you said, in my opinion, you're not. Oh, God, no, no. But people don't say it at all. But it's, it's actually just being brave and saying, this is where, you know, this is what I expect and having the conversations, which I know you're, is what you're all about. Anyway, if you've been having those coaching conversations, you know, I've been talking to you about this for the last six months and nothing's changed, then, you know, maybe we just have to cut our losses here. Exactly. So, um. I'm aware of your time. I can do perhaps a segue into some of the things that you um, you do. In, in obviously, you've trained lots of people. You've been in loads of organisations, and and you do your disruptive HR um, you know, club sessions and things like that. Just curious if, if we could just pick your brains on what are the top challenges that people come in there with, and also are there any top tips that you'd be happy to share our audience um, from when you're working closely with people like that. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think that you're right, you know, the, the work that, that that we do at Disruptive HR, it tends to be, you know, kind of training, inspiring, challenging, you know, whether it's a keynote speech or whether it's a an online webinar or um, whether it's a, you know, a kind of coaching session. Um, and the Disruptive HR Club is brilliant because it just means that people can have access to free training and all of the resources they would need to change HR. What we find people coming to us with are questions around what's the future of HR? What does it look like? How do we develop these skills, mindsets? And I think when you unpick it, it comes down to this kind of how do I build my credibility? How do I influence leaders? And I think that would be the biggest challenge that we come across. Of course, there are all sorts of other challenges like you know, performance management doesn't work and our systems aren't good enough and I'm spending too much time doing transactional HR. But I think if I was to sort of say the one thing that unites every HR person that we come into contact with, it would be how do I build the ability to influence? And I think the first thing I would say to that is 
whatever you do, don't imagine that getting a seat on the board or the executive team is necessarily going to be the answer. You know, positional power. I've been on boards and I've not been on boards and I've been on exec teams and not been on exec teams. And, and actually that positional power is not the thing. Um, it's, it's a lot of other softer stuff. And we talked a lot about judgment on this podcast. And I think having great judgment is something that the really top influential HR people have, which battles to fight, when to back off somebody, um, when to really go for it, when to be brave, when to actually keep your powder dry, when to be supportive, when to challenge, you know, that that judgment, which is really nebulous, right? So it's, you can't go to judgment school. It comes through talking it through. It comes through um, using scenarios and, and testing out how you would approach it. Um, but you're not referring people to a policy. You're not banging on about process. You are using your judgment. And that judgment comes from being really well networked. It comes from being clued up about not just HR, but every aspect of the business. You know, the best HR people are the ones who are passionate and knowledgeable about their business area. They don't just comment on things that are HR. You know, one of the best lessons I had would be a chief exec who said to me, you know, I don't just want you coming in on the conversations about people. I want your views on the commercials. I want your views on strategy. I want your views on blooming health and safety, whatever it is you should have an opinion. And that was scary to me because I'd not been in that kind of setup before, but he was absolutely right. If I'm only there as the voice of personnel, to use old language, then why would they listen to me? Um, yeah, I can be the expert, but actually so many of these decisions are not just about an individual. They are about the business. They are about the context. So you need to be able to demonstrate that. So being really well networked, not just HR people, not just people in the business, but um, really connected, bringing that outside intelligence in. You know, I think those HR people who are sending around those interesting articles, those TED talks, those books that they've written, who seem to be, we've all met them. You think, how do you find the time? You know, um, but they seem to be a source of, of real um, insight and intelligence there's somebody that you want their view. I always kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen the television program Billions. Have you seen that, Billions? And in that, you've got the uh, the kind of uh, the chief exec of this um, big hedge fund. He's got his right-hand man operations, but he's got his right-hand woman who's the people and performance person. And I think in some ways, she's the ideal. She's the ideal HR person. She is savvy. She is... Um, super smart. She understands the business, but she's the people expert. She will give him a read on how somebody's likely to respond to change or to something that's worrying them, how to get the best from people. When I think back to my time in HR, I had, I had very few of those conversations. I had lots more conversations about policy and process and training people how to use these policies and process. Whereas actually, I think the best HR people are those who they are trusted because they have a view on human beings, human condition, human psyche. I'm not saying we need to be psychologists, but I do think we need to have a real clear view on how do we get people to change? What's the best way of communicating that news? Um, how are we going to get people to be excited about that? Human emotions um, rather than process. 
which is probably almost, if you think about it, if you went into HR, why the sort of person who's attracted to HR might have a genuine interest in people. And then you find yourself in certain elements of HR and it's all about process and not about people. Exactly. Um, you know, no one in goes into HR and, and most HR people that I work are passionate about it and they work unbelievably hard, but they didn't go into HR to kind of collect information to populate the nine box grid at annual talent review or they didn't go into HR to try and define leadership competencies they went into HR because they wanted to enable people to do their best work and isn't that our job isn't that our purpose and how often we look at our days and go how much of my days did I spend enabling people to do their best work not enough almost reconnecting with your purpose for being it in the first place and then having the mm. confidence to be genuinely interested be you get over that sort of the shyness that you've got to be just that process person and take an interest in the business and by doing that you're authentic and you you add value uh, absolutely great great advice thank you um so i think we, we've had a diverse conversation there about um you know people's human beings as i suppose whether it's hr or otherwise the disruption that uh thinking about things in a, in a fresh way, in a less staid way and bringing things into 21st century and the benefits we've had from um, the, the positives and the negatives as it goes back of, of COVID forcing things through. I love the conversation about judgment. I'm going to reflect on that in terms of how can we encourage people to have the courage of their convictions, and their judgment. And I think it's about talking earlier as well in terms of those. Um, and your point there about making sure that we're credible and connected and, and networked. Um, a lot of things in terms of if people want to come to you and um, find out more, more about what you do, I'll put your website on the um, on the um, on obviously on our show notes, hruprising.com. Um, I was just curious. Are you also? I hadn't noticed before, and I only found it earlier. You also do an, a um, leaders disrupted. Is that right? Do you want to just share a little bit about the different offerings that you've got? Yeah, we've just launched that actually. So um, what we found was that firstly we were doing more and more direct for leaders. But also we recognize that that actually it kind of if we're going to change people practices, getting HR to do things differently is only one part of the picture. Of course, we've then got to get leaders to do things differently because back to this codependent relationship, you know, we're all in this dance together. And if HR changes the steps, then unfortunately, leaders are going to learn to need, need to learn the new steps as well. So we started kind of trying to put stuff out through disruptive HR, but of course a lot of leaders don't necessarily want it if it's branded HR because they don't see it's for them. So hence disruptive leaders. So disruptive leaders is just training for, for leaders. It's toolkits, very conscious that they have a, um, a kind of time poor, um, you know, context. So making it real bite-sized for them. So we do something called lead in five, which is a, a video, which is just let you know, five minutes or less helping them to think about doing things differently. So it's the kind of, uh, it's the complement to the stuff that we do with disruptive HR, but people can find, find me on LinkedIn, connect with me there. We sometimes put out free resources and um, blogs and so on, on, on LinkedIn, or they can find us at the dis uh, disruptivehr.com. Yeah, and uh, there's plenty of information there there is there's loads of great great free information and obviously they can sign up to the club as well if they want to get into the inner circle wonderful lucy <laughs> i appreciate your time um for coming on the hr uprising podcast and being our on our 200th episode so um it's been great having you on and, and lovely to have this conversation oh thanks lucinda thanks so much for having me and congratulations again bye for now 
I really hope you enjoyed the episode that we just had with Lucy Adams. It's actually the first time I've met her virtually, although we've been connected for some time. Uh, One thing we didn't get a chance to talk about, which just made me chuckle, and she's got lots of great stuff in blogs. She talks about uh, a time when she was looking for a new HR business partner and really saying how challenging it is that we have to, uh, the sort of roles you have to do if you're an HRBP. And she said that when I was looking for a new HRBP, I was often tempted to advertise for a superhero with strong interpersonal skills. So this is the sort of advert she thought she might put out there. We need a strategic and commercial HR business partner. They must have experience in the full range of HR elements, be a coach, a law enforcer, a spoon feeder, a tear dryer, and the conscience of the business. They must be prepared to come up with lots of new ideas only to have them ignored, take the blame when things go wrong and always have their item put last on any team meeting agenda after finance, operations, marketing, IT and problems with the toilets. They must be relentlessly cheerful and be prepared to listen to the ravings or woes of anyone who seeks them out. Above all, they must be able to present the latest group-wide HR initiative that has absolutely no relevance to their business unit to their MD as if it's the best thing since sliced bread. When you look at it, you realise that HR are superheroes, right? Um, When we look at what we want from them, she says, it's amazing to me that we can find one, let alone the numbers that most HR structures depend upon. So that made me smile and I think will make many of you out there smile as the sort of thing that we, the challenges that you take on um, in the HR profession and patting ourselves on the back for being genuine HR superheroes. So moving smoothly on from the idea of HR superheroes to change superheroes. I mentioned in the introduction that we had a number of free gifts available in celebration of our 200th episode. So those free gifts are our How to Be a Change Superhero hard copies of my book. So uh, if you would like to receive a free copy of my best-selling book, How to Be a Change Superhero, retailing at $14.99, then you can have one. We've got 100 copies available to the first 100 people who email in to take advantage of this just for the cost of postage. So postage in the UK is about £3. Um, I think if you are one of our wonderful listeners in a further further afoot it may be easier to go to uh, Amazon directly or maybe go to your uh, Kindle and get the electronic version. But uh, basically, if you want to just email us on info at actus.co.uk, so I-N-F-O at actus, A-C-T-U-S.co.uk, then you will, um, we'll take your details, ping you back a little PayPal um, linked for paying three quid, and we will post out um, a copy of the book. And if you want it to be signed, uh, then we'll arrange for it to be signed as well. So there are 100 copies going spare. Um, I'd love to send them all out to you. Uh, as I say, we've had a number of listeners over the years. So we've got two, 220,000 downloads, I'm counting. Um, clearly, that's more like 1,000 to 1,500 listeners. So there's plenty of books to go around. But if you'd like a copy, don't hang around. 
All right. So thank you once again for being a listener to the HR Uprising. I really, really appreciate your contribution um, and loyalty. Please don't forget to recommend us to your friends, to share, to follow if you don't already do so, because this is such a good back catalogue of content. Uh, you can direct people to the content. We've done we've done episodes on most relevant topics and tell me please if I've missed a relevant topic. So all you've got to do is go to hruprising.com and look at our categories and you'll see that we've got experts in there, we've got useful links, we've got downloadable information, webinars etc. So it's a real host of valuable resources for people. Uh, so don't you know don't miss out. Go back and check out the back catalogue. There's a few more episodes to go and then we'll be taking a summer break. So finally Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast and getting us to 200 episodes. Who would have thought it? And do write in if you'd like a free copy of my book. Thank you. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.